more before we open God's word. Oh Lord, thank you that you have given us your spirit to guide us into the truth because we are desperately lost without you. God, I pray that you would help us today to not just be hearers of the word, but to be doers of your word. And help us to cherish this time with you. We don't want to let it slip through our fingers. It is such a treasure to be known by you and to be able to be called your children. So I pray that we would lean in with eagerness, desiring to know what you have to say to us today. And I pray for myself, well aware of my weaknesses, but I, I trust you that in my weakness you are strong. And apart from you, I can do nothing. I pray that you would prosper your word today. I pray that you would be with us. In Christ's name, amen. I have this friend. He's the nicest guy in the world. And if you would meet him, you would never know at first glance that inside, he's as hard as nails. This man literally might be made out of steel. He has a regular habit of of making campfires and then walking on the hot coals afterwards for fun. When he was a little kid, he made a rock climbing wall in his basement and did that every day after school. And, And then he's one of the select few in the world that has completed an Ironman triathlon. And if you don't know what that is, it's 2.4 mile swim followed by a 112 mile bike ride. And then on top of that, they tack on a marathon at the end. It's incredible. And this guy is, it's hard to talk about athletic achievements around him. You want to say something like, oh yeah, I did that Chicago half marathon. That was tough. And even though he's too nice to actually say it, you know that he could think, oh yeah, I did one of those half marathons right after I swam 2.4 miles, biked 112, did a preliminary half marathon, and then ended up doing a half marathon. He's amazing, and we can learn a lesson from this guy that I think applies to our text from today. He set out one day to run 116 miles straight for charity. He's a really nice guy. And, then, and the night before, he made these little um, sustenance packs and put them at five-mile intervals throughout his entire 116-mile course. He woke up at 3 a.m. in order to start his run, only to discover that the night before, there had been a surprise drop in the temperature. And all of his packs were frozen solid. All the gels, all the water, everything. He didn't have a drop. He told me that he had ran an entire marathon before he even got a drop of water to drink on this run. It's incredible. He ended up um, only lasting 
58 miles. And then he had to call it quits. Because he didn't have any fuel. And this is, this, is, this is the lesson that this teaches us. You can have all the inner qualities necessary, like being made of steel. But if you don't have the fuel, ultimately, you will never end up where you need to be. We need fuel to get where we're going. I have found that out multiple times when my car has died in the middle of the highway. And in in the Sermon on the Mount series, we've been talking a lot about the heart and how important the heart is to God and how God desires to change our hearts so that He can change our lives. Prayer is the fuel that God uses to work change in our hearts. In our passage from today, we will find out that God changes us from the inside out through prayer. The passage is split up into two halves. The first is the problem, and the second is the pattern. So if you have your Bibles, if we could turn to Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. And the passage is right in the middle of Jesus' teaching on spiritual practices that draw us nearer to God. And in each one of these spiritual practices, Jesus highlights one of the pitfalls of superficial religion that gets us nowhere. And then he points us to what the real thing looks like. So in verses 5 through 8, we find two examples about one of these pitfalls, two examples about one of these problems that we need to resist. And even though they look different at the root, it's the same problem that we need to resist. At the root, it speaks of a human condition that's so innate in us that if we're not careful, it'll fly under the radar. And that human condition is self-centeredness. Or as Augustine would say, the human condition of being perpetually bent inward. And our prayer life can be bent inward if we're not careful. And that's exactly what we see. The first example is in verse 5, and this is the one that Jesus calls the hypocrite. So I'll read this as you follow along. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward. Last week, we found out that the word hypocrite, which is the normal word in Jesus' time for someone who acted for a living, but Jesus uses it to call people out in their superficial religion, saying that this righteousness that you're practicing is nothing but a show. You're playing pretend. Like if you were at VBS two years ago and I was Chef Basil, I'm not really a chef. I can't really cook all that well. And I have disappointed so many kids that were at VBS and asked me to cook for them. And I just had to say, if you only knew what you were asking... See, for the Pharisees, this wasn't who they truly were when no one was looking. They were just putting on a show. 
It says, if you look at the text, it says that they love to pray. And then it tells us why. So that they may be seen by others. This is why they love to pray. They love the attention. And this is why, in verse 5, it says that all of a sudden they found themselves at these busy intersections when it was time to pray, which was three times a day when a trumpet called out. You would stop whatever you did and prayed. And they would just happen to be at these busy intersections because they loved the attention. And that's what they got. And the somber conclusion is that that's all that they got. They got their attention. But they missed out on so much more. It reminds me of people who enter marriage for the sake of money. It's, it's self-centeredness. It's all about personal advancement. And the tragedy is that they think they won when they end up coming out of the marriage with a large sum of money. But the truth is that they lost. They lost because of all that they missed out on. They lost without even knowing it. They lost because they saw marriage as personal advancement and not the real thing. When the real thing is so much greater than anything that money could buy. They got what they wanted not knowing how little they truly settled for. Just like the hypocrites who got what they wanted but missed out on something so much greater. So this first example comes to us as a warning. Are we like that with God? Are we missing something? Are we like that in prayer? Do we only pray when others can see us, but not when only God can see? And to be specific, has it ever gotten to that personal level with you? Do you know God that way? And I know that our passage for today is about prayer, so this is a secondary application, but I can't see... I can't help but see this as at the root of it. In all the examples that we read from verses 1 through 18, Jesus is, is not just talking about defects in fasting and prayer and in giving, but something that goes much deeper is religious superficiality. And it challenges us. Do we know God in a personal way? Or are we just doing things and faking And I I bring this out because this is my story. I grew up and and my dad is a Baptist pastor. My mom was my Sunday school teacher. And my brothers were my youth group. And I went to church week in and week out. And I faked everybody out. And I even fooled myself. But it was just a show. My religion was not deeper than my skin. Just like God says in Isaiah 28.13. These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And when I realized that that described me, that I was missing something, I was missing the personal level, one night I just repented of my fakeness. And I committed to knowing God on that personal level and following Him. And do you know what I got? God himself. He 
came and he filled my life in a way that lasts forever. And I have found that that is the greatest reward anyone could ever ask for. So I bring this up because maybe there's someone here who can relate to my story. Maybe you're here because your parents bring you every week or your spouse brings you every week. Maybe you're here because you've just always gone to church. That's always what you've done. But it has never gone beneath the surface for you. You have never known God in that personal way. And I would be doing you a great injustice if I didn't invite you to cry out to God. God himself will come to you. He will fill your life in a way that you could have never imagined and in a way that lasts forever. And this will be your greatest reward. For some of us, God has already filled our lives. But we have been missing opportunities to cherish this through private times of prayer. We have been distracted by lesser rewards, missing out on the greatest. And for those of you who relate to that, myself included, let's resolve to make time to pray just by ourselves with the Lord so that we could take advantage of our full access to our Father who sees in secret. And this is what it's talking about in verse 6. It says, When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And this verse is not saying that we should never pray in public. We see examples of public prayer all over Scripture. And we also see an example of it in the second half of our passage today. But that the foundation of our prayer life should be built upon a personal relationship with God that we cultivate and we cherish in our private lives. Our faith must go deeper than our skin. The second example that that Jesus describes is found in verses 7 through 8. And this is the Gentile. And in this example, the problem of self-centered prayer becomes even more apparent. So please follow along as I read it. It says, When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need to pray for before you ask him. And at first this seems a bit confusing. It it seems out of character for God. Like he's saying, okay, get to the point already. And we know that our God's not like that. Our God's not impatient. Our God is patient. Our God has a unlimited talk time plan. We can come to him whenever. He is always ready. He never slumbers. So what is this talking about? When we do a little cultural research, we find that Gentiles who prayed during the, during the time that Jesus lived had a common practice of using these lengthy incantations to try to gain control over one of their gods. It was a common practice, for example, to, to go through all the names of the hundreds of gods in their pantheon 
And each time saying it with a different inflection because it was believed that if you said it the right way, that God would be summoned to grant whatever request you had. So they would be going through like, Baal, 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 until they tried to get it right. You see what that is? It's manipulation. It's self-centeredness. And this is what Christ is warning us against. We see in verse 8 that Jesus corrects this error by saying, your father knows what you need before you ask him. You don't have to try to manipulate him. You can trust him. You can trust his will. You can trust him to provide. But sometimes... We doubt that. Something that I, that I battle with is coming to the Lord and saying, God, I have this great idea. Will you, will you make this happen? Instead of, God, what is your plan for this particular thing? And I'm not saying that we shouldn't bring our desires to the Lord because we should. But the key lies in the attitude, in the heart in which we bring it. You see, Jesus, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he repeated himself over and over three times. The same words. But the difference was he said, not my will be done, but yours, O Lord. And in essence, the Gentiles were saying, not your will be done, but mine. This is the difference. Will we treat God like a summoned genie at our disposal or as a loving father that we can trust? We must be willing to say, Lord, this is what I desire. But at the end of the day, I trust you. Let your perfect will be done. The heart of prayer is a heart that trusts God. Our key verse for today was from 1 John 5.14, which reiterates this truth. It says, The confidence we have in approaching God is that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Anything according to His will, He hears us. And the opposite of that is found in James chapter 4, verse 3. This is the other end of the spectrum. It says, When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives that may, you may spend it on your own pleasures. You see, it's trust versus self-centeredness. And this self-centeredness is the problem that we must resist. And Jesus gives us a way to resist it by giving us a pattern for prayer that we find in verses 9 through 15. And I use the word pattern for two reasons. One, because it means consistency. Something that we do over and over and over until it becomes kind of like a habit. When, when you look at this text, it becomes very clear that this is what Jesus desires. It says in verse 5, when you pray. And in verse 6, when you pray. And in verse 7, when you pray. Three times, just like that. And then in verse 9, Jesus actually commands us to pray. And in the original language, it's a continuous command. Jesus' desire is for this to be a regular part of our lives. And I know that that's many 
of our desire as well. But the reality is that sometimes that doesn't happen. Because the reality is that we want prayer to be a pattern, but life isn't like that. This thing comes up, and this thing comes up, and this thing comes up, and we let it slip, and then Satan tells us that we're not good Christians. And then we believe him sometimes. So we say, ah, why bother anyway? And in those moments, if this is something that you struggle with, in those moments we need to remember this truth. None of us are good Christians. We all fail. But you know who is a good Christian? Christ himself. And it's his performance that we cling to, not our own. And this is the grace that motivates us to change. This is the grace that helps us to overcome. This is the grace that brings us the Spirit, who according to Romans 8.26, helps us in our weakness. So let's be diligent to pray that God would help us to be diligent in prayer. The second reason I use the word pattern is because it also means something that's a model. And when Jesus gave us the Lord's Prayer, it's supposed to be a model that directs our entire prayer life. A pattern, but not necessarily a script. As one scholar said, in verse 9, it says, pray like this instead of pray this. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray the Lord's Prayer word for word if we truly mean it. But if we stop there, we're missing something so much more because the Lord's Prayer was given to us by Jesus to direct our whole life, our whole prayer life in a way that God uses to change us from the inside out. The Lord's Prayer is divided into three sections. The first three requests focus on God. Let's read them now. Verses 9 through 10. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This prayer starts, Our Father. This is so remarkable. Jesus is inviting us to share in this special relationship that he has with the Father. The word behind this, this word Father that Jesus is using, it, it connotes something of, of relational closeness and specialness. And that's what we can share with the Father through Jesus. He will treat us like his children coming to us John chapter 1 verses 12 says this, To those who receive Christ, to those who believe in His name, He gives them the right to become the children of God. Amazing. And so we keep that in our minds as we approach God in prayer. We're coming to Him as His children. The first request says, Hallowed be your name. And this always confused me as a child because it sounds a lot like Halloween and I didn't think that was so great in the eyes of the Lord. <laughs> but, it, but it's actually just an old English expression. 
That means that God's name would be treated as holy. And God's name stands for all that who He is. So it's an expression that's saying, You, O Lord, may You be treated as holy in our actions and in our words. We're asking to honor God by what we say and we do. So this is what it looks like. It looks like us trying our best to be God's representatives on earth to the watching world and trying our best to not misrepresent Him because we want the watching world to know that He is a holy God. Because can you imagine what would happen if the watching world got this? Can you imagine what would happen if the watching world truly understood that God is a holy God? I can tell you one thing for sure. There would not be as many people out there thinking that they can earn their way into heaven by doing good things. Because they would realize that God's standard is way up here. And nothing that we could ever do could ever measure up. And people would then realize their need for a Savior. So when we pray this prayer, that's what we're asking for. And we're also asking that the church at large, ourselves included, would get this. What would happen if the church got the fact, even more so than we already do, that God is holy? The angels in heaven get this fact. And you know what they do? They spend their whole time worshiping God. And so, our prayer is that we, as God's people, would get this. So that our life would be spent in ceaseless praise. We would see it as one constant act of worship to a God is so to a God that is so holy we couldn't possibly do anything else but praise him that's what we're asking for the second request ask for God's kingdom to come God's kingdom is a way of saying his reign God rules over everything he rules over the world but the problem is that everyone in the world has rebelled against him We all live in rebellion and God could have left us like that and punished us all as rebels. But when Jesus came to earth, these were the, these were the words that he started his ministry with. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that means that when God sent Jesus, he sent him with a message that God is offering us a peace treaty through Christ himself. That in Christ, he will punish he will punish Christ instead of us for our sins as rebels and what we get in return is the ability to have him as our king and come under his authority and care to be in the kingdom you must have God as your king so when we pray for God's kingdom to come we're asking for more and more people to receive him as their king to take him up on that peace treaty. We're praying for salvation and also restoration because God does not just leave us in our brokenness. And so when we work for restoration and 
pass it around the world, we're also giving a tangible witness to what God's kingdom is like so that people could just see a glimpse of it. See how wonderful it will be. One day, it will no longer be glimpses of restoration. One day, God's kingdom will come in its fullness. And we also pray for that day when all evil will be defeated and all wrong would be made right. There will be no more sickness, no more suffering, no more pain. And God will be present with us and He will wipe every tear from our eyes. We're praying for that. And I'm also aware that on that day, the door that is now open to his kingdom will close. And those who are apart from God will remain that way forever. So when I pray for God's kingdom to come, I'm also praying that his message would spread to as many as possible as far and as wide as possible, and as quickly as possible. Because Scripture says that God does not want anyone to perish. But that all would come to repentance. And neither should we. So when we pray for God's kingdom to spread, we must be willing to be a part of its spreading. And it's the same thing for the third request. This request asks that we on earth would do God's will as eagerly and as fully as it is done in heaven. And when we pray this, we must be willing to live like this. King Henry VIII had tens of thousands of people executed during his reign. But historians have noted that he lived in a perpetual clear conscience because he prayed every day for God's will to be done. And it's an extreme example, but it highlights the fact that our prayers are empty unless we are willing to practice them. So what does it look like to practice God's kingdom coming and his will being done? It means reaching out with the good news that God has made a peace treaty with us through faith in Christ. It means working to restore hurting lives as a tangible expression of what God's kingdom looks like. It means leaving our comfort zone when he calls us out of them. It means trying our best not to complain when we're doing God's will because we know that in heaven there's no complaining when his will is done. It means addressing the areas of society that are contrary to his will, like human trafficking, abuse, hunger, and neglect. It means addressing the areas of our hearts that are clearly contrary to his will, like greed and lust and hatred and unforgiveness. None of these prayers are self-centered. All of these petitions are deliberately God-centered by design because they teach us to put God first. And this is the way that we will reverse our self-centeredness. The final three requests focus on our personal needs. And I'll pray them, or I'll read them now. It's verses 11 through 13. Give us this day our daily bread. 
And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Two things that are are remarkable about this first request. The first is the word daily, and the second is the word bread. Daily means that we're coming to God in prayer every day. It implies that we don't just pray on Sunday for our bread to be provided Monday through Saturday. Jesus envisions us coming to him every day in dependence. And it also trains us to trust God with a little bit at a time, with just enough. This was really brought out to me this this last summer in in a more real way than ever. For Lisa and I, uh, there was this perfect storm that was created against our finances just out of nowhere. It was the month of August, so I was suspended from work because I worked for a school and all the summer programs were completed. And we had enough in savings, but all of a sudden, all these massive expenses teamed up on us all at once and knocked us down. We were drained. And I remember one day in particular when I first noticed that these things weren't going to add up and that we had bills to pay. I remember praying a simple prayer just out of desperation that God would provide. And an hour later, I opened the mail and there was a check for just enough. One of Lisa's friends had sent it without knowing what was going on in our lives. She said said that God had just led her to do it. It's amazing. And it's one of these things that you think only happens to other people. But God provides for us. And it's, it's not a license to be irresponsible, but it gives us so much hope as we look to the future. God will provide. And the word bread means more than just food. It means everything you need to get by. When Martin Luther wrote a commentary on this verse, I thought it was interesting that he included in his in his list of things we need to survive, a wife, which maybe for some of you men who your wife is gone this weekend, that might have become all the more real to you. We need a wife to survive. I find myself scrounging around the house looking for something that resembles food, like a scavenger. But God does give us what we need to get by. It might not be what we want, but it is what we need. And many of us need different things. And we can bring them to God and take it one day at a time. If we are new parents, we can take it to God and trust Him to get us through day by day. If we are job hunting, we can trust Him to get us through day by day. If we are grieving, we can trust Him to get us through day by day. If we're tired, we can trust Him to get us through day by day. If we're students, we can trust Him to get us through day by day because God is going to give us what we need to get by. So is there something that God is calling you to take to Him day by day? With verse 12 we move into the realm of spiritual needs. Forgiveness is a spiritual need, just like bread is a physical need. We all have this massive debt to God called sin. 
we've been audited and we'll never be able to pay it back. But Colossians 2.14 says that God erased our record of debt by nailing it to the cross. This verse is calling us to forgive those who have offended us, recognizing that our offense to God is so much greater. So if we remain in our unwillingness to forgive, that shows that we've never truly experienced His forgiveness. Forgiveness costs us something, but it costs the Lord so much more. So we must be willing to pass this forgiveness forward. And then verse 13 is our final request. And ask God to deliver us. This verse sometimes seems confusing because it seems like God is the one leading us into temptation. But that's, that's really not what it's getting at. I make sense of it by picturing life as a series of forks in the road. Every time with an option to go down the path of temptation and an option to do what God wants us to do. And before we met Christ, we could only go down that path of temptation. But after we meet Christ, He has given us the power to go down the path that He has for Him, for us. But all we have to do is ask for help. Because if we don't, if we think that we can just go at it alone, we will fall. That's why we pray to Him, help us. I know how capable I am of falling. Help me to recognize that path and to not go down it. Lead me in your path. 1 Corinthians 10.13 puts it this way, when you are tempted, He will provide a way out so that you can endure it. And that's what we're asking for when we pray. Lead us not into temptation. God gives us the victory. And He uses prayer to bring us the victory. If we are not praying, we are losing the battle. If we are not praying, the Sermon on the Mount will struggle to take shape in your life. These ten verses are at the very center of the Sermon on the Mount because they hold it all together. You see, the Sermon on the Mount is not about... It it does not say behave to be saved, but be changed if you are. And prayer is the fuel behind God's changing work in our lives. This is how we get it done. If we want the spiritual growth that the Sermon on the Mount is talking about, we got to pray. I can't help but notice the overlap between the eight blessed attitudes that are required for our growth and the Lord's Prayer. The inner quality of absolute dependence is strengthened by praying, give us today our daily bread. The inner quality of turning to God is strengthened by asking God to forgive us our debts. The inner quality of being tamed is strengthened by praying, your kingdom come, your will be done. The inner quality of an intense craving for holiness is strengthened by praying, hallowed be your name. The inner quality 
of being tender-hearted towards others is strengthened by reminding ourselves to forgive our own debtors. The inner quality of unmixed loyalty is strengthened by praying, lead us not into temptation. The inner quality of being devoted to costly peace is cultivated by cultivating the forgiving community that we read about in verses 14 through 15. And being entirely surrendered relates to all of them because it's about denying self-centeredness and cultivating God-centeredness. You see, if we want the eight blessed attitudes so that we can grow in our walk with the Lord, the first place we need to start is prayer. And when we slip up, remembering that God is gracious and continuing to press forward. So the way that I'll conclude this morning is talking about verses 14 through 15. I'll read them to you. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And this is difficult to understand at first why God would want to end his teaching on prayer with with this passage about, with these verses about forgiveness, except that it is so crucial for us to be a forgiving community to one another if we are going to walk in holiness in community. Because when you're walking in holiness, people are going to be at different places in that walk. And, and, and we're all going to be incompletely sanctified. We're all going to be a work in progress. And so we're going to bump up against each other and rub up against each other. And those are the moments that we need to be generous in forgiving each other so that we can pray as one. Because I'm sure you've noticed by now that the Lord's Prayer is a community prayer. It says, Our Father, give us, lead us, deliver us. Forgive us. This prayer was meant to be prayed by a united community. And in order to remain united, we need to forgive each other. Because there is a difference between a bunch of separated individuals who pray and a church that prays. A church that prays has unparalleled power. And I thank God that we have leaders who pray, elders and staff and mosaics that pray. But what would happen to our neighborhood if we all got together more often and prayed as one for its salvation and restoration? What if we prayed against Satan's inroads into our families and into our schools and into our workplace? Satan does not want us to be a praying church because our prayers equal his demise. So I humbly submit that we should make every effort to pray together as much as we can because I am convinced that God's work in our lives individually and collectively is fueled by prayer. So as I close this in prayer, I'll give you just a moment for silent reflection. Making this Lord's Prayer our own.
Oh, Lord, help us to treat you as holy. Lord, help us to be about spreading your kingdom and doing your will. Help us to take to you our needs day by day, trusting you that you will provide us with with everything that we need. Lord, we ask that every time we would pray, we would remember just how much Christ sacrificed on our behalf. That this would be constantly in our minds so that it would prompt our forgiveness of others, that we would not remain as unforgiving people. God, we recognize that we are faced with constant choices every day about whether we are going to obey you or disobey you. Help us to see the way out of temptation. Help us as a community to be one, to be generous in forgiving one another, and to, br- to pray back Satan's inroads in the lives of this community and in our homes. I pray that you would continue your work in our lives and help us to be diligent in prayer. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'm just going to have you all...